0: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Dave McKechnie. A few weeks ago, Angela Merkel set off the Almost Unthinkable, her long goodbye as German Chancellor and Party Leader. But who will she pass the baton to in the Christian Democratic Union? Derek Scaly in Berlin will join us later to assess the candidates jostling to take over as head of Germany's ruling party. And in the long term, possibly the country. But first, the Ukraine, and a serious clash in the disputed Black Sea region between Russian and Ukrainian ships, has ratcheted up tension in the region, brought strong international reaction, and greatly escalated the conflict caused by Moscow's annexation of Crimea nearly five years ago. Three naval ships and their crew, which were fired upon and captured, remain in Russian custody, while on Monday evening the Ukraine parliament adopted a motion by the president to impose martial law for 30 days. I'm joined on the line by Dan McLaughlin, who's reported on conflict in Ukraine since the fall of President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014. Dan, first of all, what do we know now about what happened at the weekend?
1: So what we know, what what both sides agree on, the Russian and Ukrainian sides, is that there was uh, a pursuit. Russian boats pursued uh, three Ukrainian ships uh, in the Black Sea, close to Crimea. They fired upon those ships and forced them to stop. Um, and they took the three ships and the 23 sailors on board captive. Um, how? And then took those ships to uh, ports in Crimea, as you mentioned there. Um, what we don't know is, uh, or what what the two sides dispute is, what caused the the clash. Um, Russia claims that the ships tried to get through the the, the narrow Kerch Straits and into the Sea of Azov which is connected to the uh, to the black sea uh, without following the normal procedures and that the russian um, coast guard reacted to that and ukraine says that it was just going about the ships were going about their normal business they were moving from odessa to uh, mariupol and that they came under attack uh, in, a, in an act of, of flagrant aggression from the Russian side. So there's a dispute over that, but uh, but we know that the three ships are in Russian custody. 23 sailors have been taken into custody as well. Some of them are being taken to court today. The first group of 12, we believe, is being taken to court in uh, Crimea today. And uh, several of them are injured. There have been conflicting reports on how many. Uh, the Ukrainians said six sailors were hurt in this uh, in this 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 gunfire that came down on their ships, uh, now there are reports from Russia that it's only three of them and that the injuries are quite light and that they should be discharged from hospital in the next few days.
0: Whatever, but the facts of this incident, it is true to say that there are different interpretation about who uh, interpretations over who controls uh, these waters.
1: Yeah, I mean, since 2014, when when Russia annexed Crimea, it's become a real flashpoint, um, and that's only increased in recent months. I mean, we've seen several significant developments really. Russia's completed a huge bridge uh, linking Russia to Crimea. Um, now this bridge is so low that lots of the big ships that used to get into Ukrainian ports in the Sea of Azov can't do so anymore. They simply can't get under that bridge. Um, and the uh, in terms of other shipping that goes in and out of there the, to the to mainly to the port of Mariupol which is a very important Ukrainian port in, in, in the southeast of the country. Um, over recent months, scores of ships, this is just commercial ships, cargo ships mostly, going in and out of those ports have been stopped and searched by uh, Russian Coast Guard and, and Security Service vessels. Now, Ukraine says this is uh, simply harassment. Um, and it certainly escalated tension in the region. It's prompted some shipping companies to be reluctant to go into those Ukrainian ports, which does obviously more damage to the Ukrainian economy, particularly the, the regional economy, which is struggling because of the war in eastern Ukraine. So, so, yeah, this has been building for some time. Ukraine, in response, has increased its defenses down in that area, and it's been Uh, warning for a while that there is a danger of some kind of spark that could set set off a conflict in the region. Um, And now there are lots of calls from Western capitals to de-escalate for both sides to calm down and and negotiate a way out of this latest crisis. But it just remains to be seen really how it develops in, in the days and weeks ahead.
0: What what has the tone been like in, in the Ukrainian parliament uh in the in the discussion about this since the weekend? I, I presumably this is not a row that most people want right now.
1: Uh it's not, but um right across the political spectrum. I mean Ukraine is uh, has a very uh broad political spectrum and, and political debate is very strong and robust in the country and in the parliament. But um, all sides are united in condemnation of Russia's actions uh, and in calling on Russia to return the sailors and the ships immediately. Um, and Ukraine's Western allies have, have backed it up on that. Um, but yesterday, when it came to discussion of President Poroshenko's decree on martial law, um, there was significant opposition to his initial his initial draft in Parliament. Um, a lot of this Centered on suspicion that with presidential elections due in March and Poroshenko's poll ratings being extremely poor at the moment, he may be looking for a reason to postpone that election. So initially in his draft of the martial law decree, he asked for uh, a 60-day initial period of martial law and for it to cover the whole of the country. After um, a lot of pushback from deputies in Parliament yesterday he uh, he made some compromises and some and some concessions and in the final version um which will come into force tomorrow martial law will only last for 30 days and it will only cover 10 regions and they are regions along the border with Russia and they are regions along the uh, coasts of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov so he did make some concessions. He was forced to scale back his plans for martial law, and he did also insist that he had absolutely no intention of interfering with the the March election or the election campaign, and that the vote would go ahead as planned at the end of March.
0: What impact might Mar- will martial law have on people living there? Um, I mean, can can we get some kind of idea what what it will involve?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, in the the Ukrainian constitution, it it, it entails a, a, a vast range. It, it places a vast range of powers at the disposal of the military and the president. Um, you know, these are things ranging from imposing curfews to, um, mass mobilization of, of people and troops for, to, um, bolster the country's defenses, uh, mass conscription. It could be putting, uh, regional uh, civilian administration into the hands of military officers. It could mean things like um, transferring or or, or moving the the production in factories um, and the use of transport infrastructure, focusing them on defensive needs putting them in, uh, under military control and uh, scaling back their production for civilian needs. Now, what Poroshenko said yesterday was that while he wants this, mar- this period of martial law to help the country to become bre- better prepared for any uh, ground assault that, that Russia could launch on the country, he did insist that um, he would not be imposing measures that impinge on people's, um, people's r- normal rights and freedoms. And there would be no censorship, for example. There would be no mass mobilization. There hasn't been talk of imposing a curfew yet. So it does seem that he is um, keen to make sure this has a relatively light impact on regular civilian life in Ukraine. And it would be certainly one would think in his interest to do that with the elections ahead. His ratings are very poor And he doesn't want to turn um, even more people against his administration ahead of the presidential elections in March and parliamentary elections that are planned for next autumn.
0: And in terms of the international response you mentioned, there were strong words from Nikki Haley at the UN Security Council. uh, But it's notable that she will leave office shortly. And and there was no statement, at least yet, from, from Donald Trump or the White House or the State Department. Can we read anything into that?
1: Yeah, that it is really a reflection, certainly when it comes to, well, it, when, when it comes to Ukraine and lots of other issues, international issues, I think that is the way we've seen this Trump administration uh, operating. It will have been slightly concerning, I think, for Ukraine yesterday, because early in the day, there was a strong response from NATO and from the European Union and from major European powers like, like France and Germany, all of them backing Kiev's line and calling on Russia to free the ships and the sailors as quickly as possible. Um, but there wasn't any strong response, any strong statement from Washington for quite some time. We got something from the U.S. special envoy to Ukraine during the day, but we had to wait until the evening Ukraine time to hear from Nikki Haley, who, as you mentioned, did say at the at a meeting of the U.N. Security Council that um, this was an outrageous violation by Russia of international law and Ukraine sovereignty, but we didn't hear again until late last night, sort of overnight European time from the state department. Um, Mike Pompeo, secretary of state spoke to, to president Poroshenko. And we really got only a passing comment on this from Trump. Um, when he was asked about it, he simply said, it's not good. I'm not happy about it at all. Um, the kind of comment he's made on lots of issues, um, just uh, in passing, really, he didn't apportion any, bra- any blame and he didn't commit America to to taking any particular action on this. So that will have been slightly concerning for Ukraine. Um, there have been more comments today from European leaders. Angela Merkel spoke by telephone to Vladimir Putin. And in the readout from that conversation, um, Putin called on uh, Merkel to try and use whatever influence she had with Ukraine to stop it um, continuing with, with what he called reckless actions.
0: The undeclared war in, in Far Eastern uh, Donbass region is, is little spoken about uh, really in the in the West or or acknowledged too much. But obviously more than 10,000 people have been killed in, in four and a half years of fighting in that region in general. What is the state of play
1: uh, there now? Well, we have a situation really where there is no great movement on the ground uh, in terms of the, the, the two sets of forces. They're facing each other across a, what they call a gray zone, a, a no man's land, which includes uh, a few villages which are stuck between the two forces. Um, but every every night we do have reports of shelling, of skirmishes, gun battles between uh, the two sides. Uh, there are casualties every week. There are uh, Ukrainian soldiers killed every week there are and, and injured every week. there are civilians uh, still hurt in shelling. Um, and we don't really get any figures from from the, uh, the side of the, the Russian controlled separatists. Um, so we don't really know what's going on there. They, they also accuse the Ukrainian forces of shelling civilian positions and also civilian uh, shelling their own forces. Um, so it's, it's grinding on into its fifth winter um, without any great sense of how we can get out of it. Uh, the Minsk agreements, which were signed back in uh, early 2015, are not really having any force on the ground. Um, and the main sort of push from the West at the moment, certainly from the American side, is to try and get a United Nations peacekeeping mission rolled out in the conflict zone. But Russia only wants a very, very limited uh, peacekeeping contingent, just really on the dividing line between the two forces. And comments we've heard from directly from Putin in recent months uh, as regards the political situ- in, situation in Ukraine... Suggests that he's not really willing to do any deals with the current administration, with elections coming up in Ukraine. He said that uh, he doesn't think that uh, that the, the the conflict can be resolved under Poroshenko, and so essentially it's worth waiting to see what the elections deliver in Ukraine next year, with uh, with presidential and parliamentary elections on the way. So effectively, it's a sort of um, a, a, a holding pattern, but. uh, it might be a holding pattern politically, but on the ground there is, there, as I mentioned, there are still um, casualties every week. Um, there's still infrastructure being destroyed and and life for the millions of people living out there is really in, in limbo at the moment.
0: And Dan, there is an, obviously an additional area of tension bet- between uh, Russia and Ukraine at the moment, and that, that involves the church. And it's something you've reported on in the Irish Times. There's a synod beginning today with the prospect of an independent Ukrainian church. Um, Couldn't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I mean, to give you a bit of quick background, I mean, going back to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, um, soon after that, when Ukraine gained independence, there was a split in the the Orthodox Church there. Um, The Moscow Patriarchate, which is loyal to the Russian Orthodox Church, um, maintained its position and claimed to be the the the, the presiding religious power in Ukraine. But then a a Kiev uh, patriarchate split off and said that it wanted church independence and there was another smaller church also broke away from from the main Moscow patriarchate and that smaller church is the the autocephalous Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, earlier this year uh, President Poroshenko appealed to um, the Constantinople Patriarchate in Istanbul which is recognized as uh, the first among is first among equals, as it's as it's been called for hundreds of years in in the Orthodox world, Poroshenko appealed uh, to Constantinople to recognize uh, a unified, independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, um, independent of uh, the Moscow Patriarchate and the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, um, the Constantinople Patriarchate recognized this call. Um, it gave its approval for the formation of an independent Ukrainian church, and that process could take some um, uh, some very major steps in the next few weeks. As you mentioned, there is a synod taking place now in Istanbul, which uh, wants to uh, finalize plans for the creation of this independent Ukrainian church next month in December. Um, the uh, you, uh, the Kiev Patriarchate and the Autocephalous Ukrainian Church want to form, uh, want to hold a unification council, at which they will form this new independent Ukrainian Church, which will then be ready for recognition from Constantinople. Um, now, Russia deeply opposes this. Russia says that this is uh, effectively a new schism in the Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church has broken off relations with Constantinople, and it says that this will uh, basically fracture the Orthodox world and uh, lead to greater division and greater unrest in Ukraine. Now, uh, for Ukraine, Ukraine claims this is is a major step towards uh, basically breaking away from Russia in in all spheres of of society. Um, And uh, it hopes that in doing so, um, it will, it will break down Russian influence. It will help the country uh, establish its independence, um, and it will prevent uh, Russia exerting political and cultural influence in what it calls, uh, in what Kiev says, is a very negative way. Um, now we'll see how this develops over the coming weeks. It is, as you mentioned, a, a source of tension because both sides have warned that this could, uh, that there could be. Um, Reactions from radical groups on either side. There could be uh, attempts to seize church property. Um, so this is also potentially one reason, but why uh, martial law has been declared now to try and increase security and, and prevent these kind of provocations, which could could take place. Um, but it is uh, certainly something that that uh, will be watched over the, the weeks and months ahead, and which could add further tension, as you mentioned, to this, this already fraught uh, relationship between Russia and Ukraine. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk control.
0: Next to Germany, and Chancellor Angela Merkel's announcement at the end of October that she'll stand down as leader of her Christian Democratic Union in December was a bit of a bombshell, and it set off a contest to find a candidate who can fill her very big shoes. Merkel wishes to serve out her term as Chancellor until 2021, but her successor as head of the CDU has a strong chance to be Germany's next leader at that point, if not before. A three-way race has emerged, with the winner to be chosen at a party congress in Hamburg on the weekend of December the 7th. Derek Scali joins us on the line from Berlin to talk through the candidates and their prospects. Derek, first of all, can you tell us who these three people are?
2: Yes, and um, there's three very different candidates, um, and they're all hoping that they are the one that the 1,001 delegates will choose, or a majority of 1,001 delegates will choose when they meet in Hamburg, as you said on December the seventh. And um, the the sort of the continuity candidate uh, is the only woman in the race. Her name is Annette K- Karrnbohr. It's an awfully long uh, double barrel. Uh, hyphenated name. Uh, People call her AKK. She um, is, at present, she's uh, the party general secretary. So she's effectively uh, Angela Merkel's deputy in Berlin in the parliament. And uh, she's sort of considered the the safe pair of hands. She was made party general secretary uh, just a few months ago, and the idea was this was Merkel uh, preparing her, in you know, preparing her heirs, or her heiress, as it were. Uh, she's an a interesting candidate. She was head of a tiny federal state called Saarland in the southwest of Germany. Uh, that's her main political experience so far. But she's, um, she's, on economic issues, she's considered more left of Merkel, but on on, on social issues, she's considered sort of a value conservative. Uh, that's the first candidate. There are two others, um, both men, both huge, uh, over six foot four, I think, both of them. One is Friedrich Merz. Uh, he used to work with Angela Merkel until she shafted him in 2002. He's sort of a, a business liberal guy. He was once considered the, the the greatest hope of the CDU in future. He was um, the man that uh, everyone thought if, if they ever lose Merkel or get tired of Merkel, he would be the man they would choose. And for that very reason, she decided, I have to get rid of this guy. He's too. He's very rhetorically in the way she isn't he's got a good strong analysis uh, he's got a good brain for analysis and he's just able to get the party behind him so he was shafted in 2002 and now he's making a comeback uh, as a result of Merkel deciding to stand down so that's sort of he's sort of the wild card in the race the third guy is Jens Spahn he at present is the health minister he's uh, 38 and uh, he's considered with the least likely to uh, win the race. But he's trying to present himself uh, as sort of the, the conservative, the new generation, the man who wants to bring back in people and sort of f- take on the fight against the alternative for Deutschland. This is this far-right party that's rose up in the last five years that has been eating away at Merkel's vote, at the CDU, uh, Angela Merkel's party's vote. So he's talking, we need, uh, we need to bring back in conservatives, we need to also appeal to younger people, and he's the right man for
0: the job. Now the candidates uh, are making their case at a series of conferences around Germany. Uh, can you tell us what that process looks like? Are there debates? Uh, is there mudslinging? Is is or is it very sort of uh, reserved or, or kind of a uh, controlled yeah. environment? Yeah,
2: unfortunately, it's very reserved. Uh, for if if you're expecting, um, they they agreed at the start uh, that they were not going to tear strips off each other. So um, for any journalists who who for whom the default mode is conflict, uh, these events are rather dry. But what it is, is they're trying to, none of them wants to be, German politics is quite conservative. Nobody wants to be uh, considered sort of, here, I've got a bomb in my pocket and I'm going to explode it and we're going to feel much better afterwards. They don't do a big, dramatic change in German politics. So even uh, someone like Friedrich Merz, who would be considered probably the 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 least uh the least Merkel esque of all of the candidates. Even he is trying to moderate himself. So what you have is you have the three candidates come in, uh they each re- address uh the regional conference for around ten minutes, and then the three of them go up onto the plot onto the stage and they they just take questions. Uh I've been to a few of them so far and I yeah, I've they're interesting. They're very German in that they they uh Nobody wants to have a fight. Nobody wants to have a dispute. It's almost as if having a dispute or an argument would be bad manners. But um, considering the challenges Germany's facing, I'm quite staggered at how... um, mild mannered the whole thing is. They're also very inward looking. and um, they're they're very much, you know, sort of what do we need to adjust? Make a small adjustment here, make a small adjustment there. And you sort of you go out of the conference and you switch on your phone and you see, you know, Russia and Ukraine, you see Donald Trump has tweeted something, and you you do wonder what world exactly are the CDU party members living in, because they're they're asking questions about, you know, do we need to um do what do we need to do about plastic uh, rubbish and uh are, should we be allowed to uh, shoot wild wolves if they attack our cro- or attack our animals so it's 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 all sort of small small local concerns that these party uh would be party leaders are being asked to address i've yet to hear a big discussion about brexit i've yet to hear a big discussion about the future of the European Union. Um, now, of course, this is a party re- electing a new leader, so uh, I, I would expect at the party conference in in Hamburg there'll be a lot of uh, they'll have to each give a speech uh, about you know where do they see the future of the European Union and where do they see Germany's place in it. But at least for for now, from what I've heard so far, it's um, it's certainly quite modest in their um, in their reach, in their expectation, uh, and in their ambition
0: and so what about the makeup of the CDU party and particularly the delegates who will vote uh, in December in terms of their their age and their ethnic profile and how does how will that affect the vote um, and obviously the campaigning up to now which which you've described
2: well i mean the cdu is technically sort of a center right party a conservative party if if the delegates i've seen or if the members i've seen at the events or anything to go by. The CDU is an over-60s party. The CDU is a white party. The CDU is a party of men, uh, which would tally in with uh, the uh, analyses you see. Angela Merkel, was her her great achievement in the last few years was... um, a bit like a newspaper that says all our readers are dying. We need to sort of appeal to a younger audience and maybe a more urban audience. That's what she did with the CDU as well. She she brought the party away from the right into the centre uh, and made a sort of more a more appealing uh, political prospect or more appealing party that uh, urban dwellers with, let's say, young families might vote for, not just their parents, you know, who stayed back in, in rural Germany. So the the argument really is what kind of party does the CD want to be in the future? And um, the continuity candidate, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, she basically is saying we need to continue this path. All vote analyses say... There were, you cannot win an election if we go back to the right. The, the SPD, they're current in power with them in the grand coalition. They'll just occupy the political centre. So we have the political centre. We must maintain that. Um, and then the argument seems to be about how much or how little do we reach out to conservatives who are sort of um, hanging on onto the CDU or may have already drifted away to the AFD. So we're talking here a lot about older men, older white men, um, from all social classes they are the ones i think uh, that will swing this election if enough of them can be convinced that the new cdu leader uh, means uh, is, is serious about renewing the party and maybe making a play for them perhaps that will be important so really the the candidates are each they're very, they're calibrating their messages very closely do is 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 do the polls say that party members want um, overhaul, serious overhaul or do they just want uh, tweaks and um, so far what, I, what I've what i heard is that the, their analyses seem to be suggesting they want tweaks as opposed to, let's say, evolution as opposed to revolution um, but of course uh, we've still got a few of these regional conferences to go and it's two weeks yet, to almost two weeks until until the party conference and um, we'll see, Mer- I mean Angela Merkel's candidate is clear, it's this woman Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer but the party is sort of growing tired of Merkel and there's nothing quite like somebody at the end of their political career suddenly their authority isn't quite what it used to be and there could be some surprises at the party conference that Merkel might be humiliated and that might sort of put some blood in the water and encourage delegates to sort of go for somebody that Merkel doesn't want to take over the party for instance Friedrich Merz and then all bets will be off
0: and and looking at this point what what do you think the chances are of Angela Merkel uh, seeing out her term as Chancellor or or one of these candidates perhaps uh, stepping in there in the next year or two
2: Oh, well, she said, Look, I have I ran for a four year term. I want to serve a four year term. But of course, she could turn around and say, Well, I want to serve a four year term. But the new leader of the party asked me to go. So, with a heavy heart, I'm leaving. I think it's quite unlikely she'll make it to 2022. But it will largely depend on who she gets. If she gets this compromised candidate, her own preferred candidate, AKK got Camp Kauenbauer, she could stay closer to the year. She might stand down a year earlier to give her sort of more wriggle room in an election. But if the other two, uh, Friedrich Merz uh, or Jan Span, it's very unlikely uh, Friedrich Merz really can't work with Angela Merkel so it, that would be an interesting battle of wills, uh, and uh, certainly bring some much needed spark back into German politics.
0: Derek Scully will watch it with interest. Thanks for joining us in Berlin Thanks to today's contributors Dan McLaughlin and Derek Scully Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon I'm David McKechnie, you can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.